This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Today, um, we are looking at Hosea chapter 14. So that's in the Old Testament. Last week we were in Ezekiel. We've been in Isaiah, Ezekiel. And today we're in Hosea chapter 14. And if you are uh, sort of new, you're walking into a series that we're calling Revive. Normally we just sort of teach through books of the Bible. But we are now looking at a number of different passages. We're still teaching the Bible. But we're looking at a number of different passages on the theme of God's renewal and God's revival of his people. And uh, we see that it's really a common theme in the scripture. We've been looking primarily at Old Testament passages so far. Uh, we looked at a couple of Psalms. We've looked at a passage in uh, Isaiah. We've looked at a passage in Ezekiel. Today we're looking at a passage in Hosea. And in some ways today uh, marks a bit of a, uh, marks a, a slight shift uh, in the series, in that so far we've we've um, taught almost exclusively the character of God um, as the one who revives, the sovereign God who revives and renews His people by His mercy, the sovereign God who pours out His presence on His people, uh, who restores their hunger, uh, who renews. Uh, his word among them, and those sorts of things. Uh, we've said very little bit about our response to God. We've said some, but mostly his response to us. Well, today we're going to look at a passage which still highlights in a significant way the character of God. A little different than what we've looked at. In this passage, we see that his character is that of love, that, that, that revival comes because God is loving. That's the theme of this passage. But it also speaks of our responsibility to respond to God. And so we're going to emphasize that a bit more today than in the other passages, because this passage emphasizes that a bit more. So before I read the chapter, one of the challenges in this series is I just can't tell all the context of the books these come from, because we're just doing a chapter at a time. So that's that. Uh, I'm sorry about that. But I need to tell you something about Hosea, because if you're not familiar with this book, if you're not a Christian, you might not even believe this story's in the Bible. Uh, but this is from a prophet named Hosea, and he is calling the northern kingdom of Israel uh, in the 8th century BC. He is calling them to return to God because they have forsaken him, his people have forsaken him, and chased after other gods. And God calls him to do something very unusual. He calls the prophet to marry an unfaithful woman who will sleep around with other lovers. And so he marries this woman, Gomer, and they have several children together. And he names these children uh, various names about, uh, that, that represent how Israel has been unfaithful to her God. And then Hosea pursues his wife, loves his wife. And it's a demonstration, it's a really a painful prophetic picture of how God reaches out and loves his people, even in their unloveliness, how God is faithful to us, even in our unfaithfulness. And it makes a very profound point in the book. It's a stinging point, And it's this, that when we serve other gods, it is not a, uh, when we give into idolatry or even say it this way, when we sin, it's not merely a mistake. It's not poor judgment. It's adultery. 
It's being in the bed with a woman we're not married to. That's what it is because we're called to be faithful to God. And when we sin and when we serve as a pattern of life, other gods, other idols, it is spiritual adultery. So that is the point of the book. And he is calling his people to return to him. And we're now at the last chapter of the book. Judgment is impending. They have not responded. Doesn't tell us how they respond at the end. But it's a kind of a last plea that God is making through the prophet Hosea to his people, a nation of spiritual adulterers. And here's what we see about God. This is amazing. Commentator uh, Peter Craigie, who I'm sorry I don't quote him more because his last name is Craigie, and that would just be kind of cool. But this is what he says. He says, God continues to love even when divine love has long been rejected. They've rejected the love of their God. And he continues to love, and we see it in this passage. Chapter 14 of the book of Hosea. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their iniquity, their apostasy, I'm sorry. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. The ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a loving God that calls us to yourself. We thank you for your immeasurable patience and forbearance. We thank you that you are faithful to us even when we step into ways of unfaithfulness. And we pray that the message of this chapter would speak to us, Lord, that your very presence would descend in a unique way now and that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you would not hold back any of the sobriety that we should get from this passage, and we plead with you not to hold back any of the loving mercy that you extend to us through this passage. And we pray that we would take to heart the closing verse of the book, that whoever is wise, let him understand. Lord, help us to understand. Whoever is discerning, let him know. Let us know. Grant us wisdom and discernment from the Holy Spirit to evaluate our lives, to evaluate our families, to evaluate our church, and to come running to you, the God of mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, this chapter is very simply outlined. The first three verses uh, are are, um, Hosea speaking. So the first three verses are a charge to repent. Verses 4 through 8 is the next section, and that is a promise of renewal. That's God speaking. So there's a change in voice here. The prophet speaking, and then God speaking directly. That's 4 through 8. And then there's a call to respond. That's verse 9. So a charge to repent, um, and then a promise of renewal, and a call to respond. Repent. Uh, revive or renew and respond. That is how it flows. Well, the very first word is the theme of the chapter. It's the theme of the book. Return. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. We see it again in verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. We see it again in verse 7. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. This is the word. Israel is the unfaithful uh, spouse And uh, they're being called to return to their God. He's calling his people, come back home to me from where you are. And what we learn from the passage and throughout the book we learn is that his people have turned away and they have turned to the nations. They've looked to other nations for security instead of looking to their God, and they have turned to various idols. So they've sought security, they've sought pleasure, they've sought meaning in life through other means than their God. And now he's calling them to come back. This is a very common uh, situation in the Old Testament. And if we read the New Testament letters discerningly, we'll see it's a very common situation in the New Testament as well. Because what we have seen in these four sermons that we've had, and now the fifth, we've seen that God is a renewing and a reviving God. But there's a corollary to that, that his people are to be a repentant and a returning people. God is a renewing and reviving God, and his people are to be a returning and a repentant people. And that's the truth for all of us. We become Christians through repentance and faith, that is, we turn from sin and we turn and we trust God to be our Savior, to be our everything. And you know what? That's not only how we're converted, that's how we grow. The Christian life is about turning from lies that we're tempted to believe, turning from sin, turning from the messages, the false messages that our culture gives to us, turning from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and turning in faith to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. That's how we grow in the Christian life as well. So the fact that the people of God would be called to repent and return is not a shocker. It's a lifestyle. It's the Christian life. Repentance is not just what we do to get in the door. It's how we live our life before the Lord until he returns for us, at which time there will be no need for repentance, for there will never be any more sin in our lives, and we long for that day. So this situation is serious, and he calls them to return to the Lord your God. I love that language. God has made a covenant with his people, and even though they're faithless, he still says, I'm the Lord your God. I'm your God. Come back to me. He's a covenant God, and they are his people. We are his people, even when we don't act like it. So Israel's not acting like they're his people, but he still says, come back to the Lord your God. They have fallen away, and look how they have fallen away. Verse 1, you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The word iniquity means sin. You've stumbled because of your sin. Here's how the NIV says it. Your sins have been your downfall. Your sins have been your downfall. So the problem with the people of God now, it's not mysterious. 
It's not that they have just had this sort of uh, uh, unexplainable drift. It's not that they've just are sensing God's distance for some mysterious reason. That, That does happen. We looked at some other passages where I think that was kind of what was going on. But the issue here is not that they're just having a mysterious suffering. The issue here is not that they're just dry, and I can't really put my finger on why I'm dry. The issue here is that they are blatantly pursuing other gods. The issue couldn't be clearer. Their problem is their sin. And he calls them to repent, which means to turn or to return to God. And look what he says, verse 2, take with you words, return to me, take with you words, and return to the Lord. Here's what they're supposed to bring. Words, real words, heartfelt words, sincere words, from the gut words, from the core of their being, seeing who God is and seeing how far they've drifted like a prodigal and to come back and say, take their words sincerely to God. He doesn't say, bring me your works. He doesn't say, clean yourself up and start obeying and then you can return to me and I'll accept you. He doesn't say you're going to be in the penalty box. There's going to be a timeout. You're going to sort of just be separated. And after enough time, then I'll receive you. He says, return now and bring real words. By the way, he doesn't mean sort of momentary words. He doesn't mean uh, like shallow, insincere words because they already tried that. Look back at verse uh, chapter 6. This is fascinating. They already brought false repentance. There's true and false repentance. Real repentance isn't just a momentary feeling we have, feeling bad about something. It's not that we just felt sort of guilty when we heard a sermon one Sunday. It's to the core. Look at chapter 6. This is what Israel says to the Lord, and catch the flippancy of it. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Verse 2, after two days he will revive us. Hey, look, we've blown it, but it's coming quick. Two days he'll revive us. On the third day he'll raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. It's for sure he's going to change us. His going out is sure as dawn. He will come up to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. It's sort of presumptuous. Just like the seasons, God will come back to us. Don't worry about it. Look at his response, verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. You know, you're like, you're, you're expressing love and repentance. It's like a cloud that's out early in the morning for about an hour and then it's gone. It's not real. You're like the dew. Yeah. It's wet at 7am by 9am. The grass is dry. You you are, you're like that. Verse five, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You're just making empty confessions and maybe you're going to give a burnt offering. That's easy. What I'm, what I'm asking is for steadfast love and real knowledge of God. So when he says, take with you words, he's not talking about chapter six words. He's talking about a real sincere repentance. 
And the next verses describe that repentance. Now, here's a really valuable lesson from this passage. Repentance moves in two directions. Repentance moves in two directions. First of all, it's turning to the Lord, right? Verse 1, return, O Israel, to the Lord. Verse 2, take with you words and return to the Lord. Repentance means I'm walking this way away from the Lord in my thoughts, my words, my deeds, some specific area of sin. And now I'm returning to the Lord. So it moves in two directions. It moves to the Lord. It moves toward the Lord. But at the same time, it moves away from sin. So repentance is a turning away from sin and to the Lord. So return to the Lord. Now he addresses sin. Take away all iniquity. That's sin. So we are moving to the Lord. We're moving away from sin. Ask God to take away sin. Accept what is good. In this case, that probably means accept the good words, the good confession. Lord, take my iniquities. Accept this, this response, this good confession. We will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. That sounds a little clunky in the ESV. It's a little smoother in the NIV. The NIV says that we may offer the fruit of our lips as the sacrifice of bulls. So what he's saying is come to the Lord, come back to the Lord, move towards the Lord, bring sincere words, tell the Lord we've been in sin, take our sin away from us, and tell him that you want to offer the fruit of your lips. You don't want to just kill a bull and offer a sacrifice. You want genuine praise from your lips. God doesn't need a dead bull. God's looking for your heart expressed in sincere words of praise and gratitude and repentance. So come back that way, he says. It's verbal. It is turning to God. It is turning away from sin. It is saying, take away sin, but it's more than that. It's not, repentance is not just turning from sin. It's turning and confessing, turning from sin and confessing very specific sin. Look what they say, verse three, Assyria shall not save us. He's saying, come to God and don't just generally say, we've been in sin. Could you please forgive us? Be specific. What has Israel done? They've gone to Assyria to save them. God Almighty is their king to save them. And yet they have gone to another nation making a political alliance with a pagan nation so that that nation would protect them. See, this is not just, hey, we took a trip to Syria. What they did was made an alliance with Syria. And so what he's saying is, see what that is. What we're saying is, God, we will not place our security in a human strength and in a human power. We place our security in you. So we're coming to you and we're leaving reliance on Assyria. We're not going to take security in the world. We want you to protect us. We won't look elsewhere. We will not, verse 3, ride on horses. This may, most commentators think, this is probably a reference to going to Egypt. Egypt provided horses. So it's probably saying we're not going to rely on horses. It's, it's interesting, chapter 7, he mentions these two nations together. He says, Ephraim, chapter 7, verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove. Ephraim is the northern kingdom, people of Israel. It's, they're like a dove, silly and without sense. I never knew that about a dove, but a dove is silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. 
So my people are foolish. They've got the God of the universe to meet all of their needs and to demonstrate this over and over through generation and generation. And yet the people of God are going to Assyria and saying, protect us. We need military power. Let's spend money and let's, if I can say it this way, get in bed with Egypt. Because that's what they did. Spiritual adultery. Let's look to the nations to protect us. We've ignored your promises. We've compromised. What are they doing? They've got a plan B in case God doesn't come through. They've got a plan B. We've got a backup because we're not sure that God is who he says he is. We don't know for a fact God's going to be faithful. And so we better have a backup plan. One commentator said this, simply put, the people of God feel nervous if all they have is God. The people of God feel nervous if all they have is God. Can you relate to that? I can. Well, sure, I know what the Bible says, but I've got reality to deal with in life. I better have another plan. I better have another strategy. I better have a backup. I better have something in my pocket that'll pull me out if God doesn't come through. I better have a security source. That's what they did. So we're not going to look to other nations for security and provision. Look what it says next. We will say no more, quote, our God to the work of our hands. What's he talking about there? Israel worshipped the Baals, foreign gods. They worshipped statues. And he's saying, we're going to say, God, we're coming to you. This is specific. He's not just coming in saying, hey, God, we have done some bad things. We're saying, no, we've carved images and we've said our God to those images. We're not doing that anymore. It's specific. Turning to God, turning away from very specific sins, looking for security in the nations, looking for provision in the nations, and looking to the work of our hands, idols, to do something for us, to trust in, to produce something for us. Now, it, the danger in a passage like this is number, uh, verse 9, uh, whoever's wise understand, whoever's discerning. We can be unwise and lack discernment and say, this does not relate to me. I'm not looking to foreign nations. You know, I'm not looking to any other nation. That doesn't relate to me. I have no statues in my home. I, in my life, I'm guilty of a lot of sins. I've never bowed down to a statue that I carved and said, my God, I've never done this. And so we can look and say, you know, that doesn't really relate to me. That is a crude people from a foreign uh, historic 8th century BC that were primitive in their understandings. I'm not like that. I heard a story a pastor told a few years ago, and he was talking about his, I think it was his first trip to India. And he said he was overwhelmed overwhelmed by the literal idolatry in India. He said, we just walk around and there were statues everywhere and people offering food and flowers and money in the, in these little places where you could, uh, can't think of the word right now, but where you could go in and worship in a temple or in some other kind of uh, place where there's an honor to gods. He said everywhere you went, multiple, couldn't even keep up, couldn't count all the gods, all the statues in India. And he was talking, he's American, he's talking to a Christian woman who's Indian. 
And he just was talking to her about her experience. He said, hey, well, have you ever been to America? Would you like to come to America? Have you ever been to America? He said, oh, no. I would never want to come to America. He was taken aback by that. He said, well, why is that? He said, I could not handle the idols, the idolatry in America. You have stadiums where untold thousands gather and worship sports teams. You have money like we don't have. And you worship your money and your possessions. There is a sensuality and a sexuality in your culture that is foreign to us. I couldn't imagine seeing the stuff and living in a place where, 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 where private things are so open and celebrated and worship the idolatry of sexual pleasure in your culture. The, the ideas of image that you have. I would never be able to visit or live in an idolatrous environment like that. Idolatry is not about statues. It's the idea behind the statues. Idolatry is anything we look to and trust in when God isn't enough. And so that can be a nation, a political alliance. That can be a statue that if we pray to, will enable us to conceive and have a child, a fertility God. Or that can be money, sex, fame, image, sports, technology, food. It can be anything. And the repentance that's represented in this passage is the repentance that says, I'm coming specifically to God and saying, God, I have put my hope and my trust and my security in something or someone beside you. We don't read this text and say, how distant am I? What a sinful group of people the Israelites were. No, we look at that and say, I see myself in the story. I see myself in the account. Every one of us can relate. Because daily we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, which, which conspire to tell us God is not enough. And there is something better. And you need turning wants into needs, turning cravings into desires that demand our attention. You must have. You're missing out. You'll be happy if real security is found in. It's in the commercials It's in the mall. It's on the internet. It's it's in the chatter among the worldviews of the friends of those who surround us. And it's in our own flesh. And it's alive and well. And it's more, I agree with the Indian woman, it's more insidious and more deceptive than a statue that you can point to and say, idol. It's way more insidious. I agree with her. In many ways, Western culture is a harder place to live in terms of identifying the idols of the culture than a culture like hers. All idolatry comes from the heart, and yet we can so easily miss that. See, we, we, can, we can have all kinds of things. So I, I lack security. I'm insecure. What do I do? I may not go to a nation. I may have a different kind of insecurity. I may be insecure and 
what I look to, instead of the security I have in Christ, instead of the security I have as a justified person declared righteous before Jesus, that's ultimate security. Uh, instead of that, I look at for my security in the approval of others. And so I need you to like me, to respect me. And so I give you an edited version of me. Not the real version, the edited version, so that you will like me. And depending on who I'm portraying that image to, it'll be a different version. Because there's a different value set, right, at the office. There's a certain things that are respectable there with your extended family. Oh, I give an edited version there because so they will think well of me. At the church, I give an edited version of who I am. I wouldn't want to be thought of in the same way in my small group as I am in the office because there's these competing values there about which would curry favor and respect, and so we live that way. We live a trapped life, trying to have others think well of us so that we will have their approval. And the Bible calls that fear of man, and the Bible says it's a trap. It's an idol. It's an insidious trap. Or we fear for our financial future. We, we don't really believe God will provide. We know Jesus said, look at the, look at the field I provide the flowers of the field, look at the birds of the air. Have you ever seen a hungry bird? No, I provide for the birds. I'll provide for you. But that word's somehow not enough. I can't take that scripture to the bank. I can't take that scripture to my credit card bill and say, look, I need something a little more secure. And so I don't steward my money for the glory of God I don't live by a radical generosity that lives in a freedom of trusting God. I take my money and I spend it in ways that will make me feel comfortable. Or I am worried and anxious and fearful about my finances. Whatever we fear, that's often a sign of of what our idol is. If I'm free to trust the Lord, if Jesus is my Lord, I don't worry about my money. But if he's not, and he may not be who he says he is, then I better come up with a plan B and worry and fret and be anxious. Or we spend our money on things that we need to enhance our image or to feel good. We have to have the right clothes. Of course, none of this would be true about the Frisco environment, but let's pretend it's another environment. We have to have the right clothes and the right house and the right car and the right technology the right smartphone, the right opportunities and experiences for our kids. And if we can't afford it, we don't trust the Lord. We, we go into debt to get it. Do you know what debt is? Not always. There, there's, some, there's some consumer debt that comes from medical emergency, and, and I get that. But the majority of consumer debt is nothing but an offering to an idol. It's literally making an offering to an idol. It's saying, I have to have something now. And so what I will do is I will pay, I will will charge and maybe I can pay later. I don't know. But it's doing that to get what I want now. It's an offering to an idol. Consumer debt is no, it's not, it's not sophisticated. It's putting down a trinket in front of a statue. That's what it is. And so that's what we do. Our idols, here's a way to think about idols. It's where we go for security. They went to Assyria. Where do I go? 
It's where we go when we feel empty. It's where we go when we feel sad. It's where we go when we feel bored. So when we're empty, sad, bored, lonely, where do we go? Food? That's an idol. Or can be an idol. Obviously, it's a gift from God to be enjoyed. But if it's something that replaces God, it's an idol. A good thing that's to be received and enjoyed, when it becomes a substitute for God, then it's an idol. It's no longer a gift to be enjoyed. It's a replacement. Food can be a God replacement when I'm lonely or bored. Shopping can be a God replacement. Alcohol. Drugs. Sex. Where do I go when I'm sad, bored, lonely, empty? Pornography. A relationship. Entertainment. See, we have the same temptations as the Israelites. They just look different. And they're all spiritual adultery, just like the Israelites. I'm not saying entertainment is sinful. I'm saying when it's a replacement for God. Then it becomes so that I'm an entertainment junkie. I'm addicted to entertainment, the internet, these kinds of things. That's when it's a problem. Bowing down to a Baal statue, that seems silly to us. Other people's idols are always silly, aren't they? But is there anything less silly, ladies, about saying, I feel a lot better about myself and like the way people are looking at me in a new outfit? Is that any more logical, wise, and godly? We laugh at a statue, but is a statue any more foolish than saying, I'm bored, gentlemen? I'm empty, so what would really help me right now is to watch naked strangers on a screen. Is that any more wise than bowing down to a statue? It's not. Idolatry is evil. And idolatry, here's the point that's made here as well. Idolatry is stupid. Look at the next verse. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Why do we have this verse about mercy all of a sudden? What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. God, you have adopted us and cared for us and shown us mercy. Why would we go anywhere besides you? It's foolish. It's stupid. Why would we go to Assyria when we have the God of the universe who has shown mercy to us? Why would we get out a horse from Egypt when we have God? Why would we bow down to a statue when the God who delivered us from Egypt and brought us through the Red Sea is leaning towards us and loving us? You are the God who had mercy on an orphan. Here's what we're like. Sometimes we're like orphans, and we, here's an example, we are dirty, isolated, lonely, cannot provide for ourselves, needy. We're like an an orphan out at a trash heap in an impoverished city, a burning trash heap, and we're like a naked, dirty, poor little orphan with no parents, no family, digging through the trash heap, trying to find survival, and the king of the nation comes in, and he takes us into his family and he takes us into his palace and he cleans us up and he clothes us in his own clothes and he gives us food that we couldn't even imagine we all we knew was scraps and he feeds us the finest food available and he welcomes us into his family and he gives us an inheritance that when he uh, will go on all of this will be ours 
And so we live in the palace. We have a wonderful relationship by the king who showed mercy on us when we had nothing. And we get a little bored. And we get a little empty. And we get a little longing for something else. And we walk back out to the trash heap. Leave all the glory that we have with the king. And start picking through scraps. Thinking that there's something for us there. Here's a quote from a guy I don't even know. I, this was, came up on my Twitter feed this morning. Once a year, I get a Twitter comment that I can share in a sermon, and it happened this morning. This is what a guy said. I don't even know who he is, but this is what he said. Sin is making a bid for self-proclaimed orphanhood. That's what it is. I want to go back to orphanhood. I want to leave the provision of my father and chase something else. So what does Hosea say? He says, Israel, grasp the holiness of God, grasp the grace of God, grasp the wonder of God, return to him, take words, real meaningful words. Don't clean yourself up and get right. That's legalism. I'm going to be good enough for God to accept me. That's legalism. You go as you are broken and repentant. You turn from your sin, from your idolatry. You turn to your God. You confess specifically people of God where you have been. And you come to the father who adopts the orphan and shows mercy and be renewed. And that's what he does next. The, vo the voice changes in voice four to the voice of God. So this is all Isaiah. I mean, I keep saying that. Hosea, verses one through three. Hosea is saying, turn to the Lord. This is what the Lord says, verse four. I will heal their apostasy. Apostasy means waywardness. I will come in and heal your adultery. It's a wonderful picture. It's not a real common picture in the Bible. Matter of fact, not in this church, but I can remember actually teaching that the Bible never set, addresses sin as something we need to be healed from. I can remember having that idea. I heard somebody say that. I taught that. That's just not biblically true. It's not the predominant image, but here it is. I'll heal their waywardness is what apostasy means. I'll heal them of their sin. So, the sin, the, the sin is like disease in us. And God is going to heal us of that as we turn to him in repentance. I will love them freely. I will love them freely. They've been chasing other lovers, but I'm going to share my love freely with my people. That is the assurance that we have when we turn to the Lord. I will, uh, uh, my anger has turned away from them. For us in Christ, God has spent his anger on his son, Jesus, for our sins, and he invites us to him. He loves us freely. He'll heal us of our sins. And then look at these images. If there is a passage in Scripture that describes revival any more beautifully than this, I haven't encountered it. This is revival. This is people who are going from acting like an orphan, acting like God doesn't exist, lacking spiritual power, lacking fellowship with God, lacking a sense and an awareness of his spirit, lacking real communion with God Almighty, lacking spiritual strength, lacking the word of God richly being feasted upon. They lack all that. They turn to God and look what he says. Verse 5, I will be like the dew to Israel. What does that mean? Dew represents freshness. It'll be like the morning for you, my people. Like when you go out and there's dew on the ground in Israel, a desert environment, I'll be like the refreshing dew that comes in the morning. That's what I'll do for you. 
He, will, he shall blossom like the lily. This is something that is beautiful. The word beauty is actually used in verse 6. His beauty shall be like the olive. Here's what he's saying. Israel, I will make you beautiful again. Sin mars the people of God. Sin is ugly. It's evil. It's foolish. And it makes us ugly. It does not make us beautiful. The people of God are not beautiful when they're mired in sin. They're horrendous. And our appearance is horrendous. Uh, ultimately, because of our sin. And so what he's saying, I'll make you beautiful again. You will be re-beautified. We live in a culture that is rampantly in love with people like me who get old and want to get re-beautified physically, get some work done. And the reality is that we can get re-beautified spiritually as we lay our sins down and come to the Lord, and he beautifies the people of God in a way that we can't even imagine. He doesn't say you're old and haggard and you've got a lot of miles on you as an immoral people like they did. He says, I'll make you beautiful. You will, you will blossom like the lily. He, verse 5, look at this. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. You're going to, the trees of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon were world-renowned for their massive stature. You are going to have roots that go deep. You're going to be stable. Idolatry is ultimate instability. You're as stable as the stock market is. How's that for stability? You're as stable as the opinions of others who like you today. Anybody had ever had anyone's opinion about you change? That's not very stable. You're as stable as your ability to never age. Yes, you're young and beautiful. You will not always be. You will look like me one day. That's coming for you. Okay, just a word of warning to the young people. You will look sad one day, okay? And that's why I love spiritual beauty, and that's why this speaks to me, because I'm getting my spiritual beauty on here. That's good. I'm getting handsome in my spirit. Uh, so, but I, idolatry is not stable, it's not stable. But he's saying, you return to me and you are going to have root like these massive trees. Think of the California redwoods, if, if you've seen pictures. I've seen them. I've driven through them. I've been there. It's incredible, the stability of these trees taking root. Your shoots will spread out. You're going to grow. You're going to have influence. His fragrance will be like Lebanon. I never thought, it's probably talking about the cedar trees and their fragrance again. I never thought about this. So, so I just read a, almost a random comment from somebody who was talking about this this week. And this is what they said. Fragrance has no utilitarian value. It only brings pleasure to those who smell it. Fragrance is not utilitarian. It's just, it just brings delight if it's a good fragrance. It just brings delight. So he's saying, People, you're going to be a delight. You're going to have the aroma of Christ about you. That's revival. When the people of God give off an aroma of Christ, the love of God, the message of the gospel, it's a delight to be a part of. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? Fragrance like Lebanon, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. You don't have to go to Assyria for shade and protection. You've got God as your protection. They will flourish like the grain and blossom like vine. You're going to be fruitful. 
You return to me, I'm going to make you a fruitful people. This is revival, bearing fruit, growing, maturing, lives that are changed, marriages that are restored, families that are brought intact. That's, that's revival. That's growth. Their fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. I don't know anything about the wine of Lebanon, but it must have been famous because he's using it in a simile here. The, the wine, you're going to be known like that wine. Your influence is going to spread. People are going to come to Christ. People are going to see God is alive. God's doing something over here. It's delightful. It's beautiful for those whose hearts are being drawn. It's delightful. It's wonderful. It's stable. It's what I don't have. It's the real thing. I'm in a trash heap. I can go live with the king and have my life restored and receive eternal life. Yes, I want that. Your fame will be known. And then look at this appeal, verse 8. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? You're not going to find me among that stuff. It is I who answer and look after you. It's not your bank account. It's not your reputation. It's not having your kid on the honor roll. It's not being esteemed by other people. That's not going to answer and look out for you. It's not your health. It's God. I'm like an evergreen cypress. I'm always alive, is what he's saying. From me comes your fruit. Any fruit you have in life, it's from me. Any benefit, any growth, it came from the Lord. It didn't come from idols. That's what he says. What a wonderful picture, a poetic. This picture of the church or the people of God, Israel, here he's speaking, but it applies to us. Any, this picture of, of what would happen if God is among his people is so glorious that he doesn't even describe it in like literal terms. He has to, he has to go poetic because poetry is a way of consuming high ideals, lofty values, wonderful pictures that can't be expressed in simple prose language. That's when you go, we're going to describe your love for someone. You don't just use like scientific language. I'm having a chemical experience in my body where I am thinking fondly of you. What? Well, no, it's like, <clears throat> you, you know, you, I can't even think of anything, but that Valentine's Day's past. <laughs> but, but it's some poetic expression. My wife's in the second service, so I've got time to write something <laughs> for the second one. We'll, we're podcasting the second service because I'm going to have something romantic on it. But um, so he goes poetic to describe this. And then he calls to respond. This is one of the most sober verses. I mean, seriously, is there a most sober verse in, in the Bible? If you read all of this about spiritual adultery and sin, and it says this, whoever is wise, let him understand. So here we've got, we've got. Hosea speaking to Israel. We've got God speaking to Israel. And then we've got looking off camera at us and saying, by the way, you in the audience, this is for you. Pay attention. If you think this is a historical lesson and you think this is something ancient and it has no relevance for you, then you will stumble as a transgressor. So pay attention is what he's saying. It's like he, he calls us all in and says, this is for you. This is for you. So how do we respond? Well, first of all, we receive the love of God. There are some of us that are hesitant to repent because we think that God is a restrictor and a denier and that he's merely calling us away from good things. That is a lie. God calls us away from bad things and he calls us to himself. He says, I'll trade a statue for me. 
I'm the one who took you as an orphan and showed mercy on you. You get out of the trash heap, you get relationship with the king. I'm not saying that if we follow the Lord that all of life is easy. I'm not saying that. It's not a prosperity gospel. But I'm saying that when you come to him, we have everything that we need. He loves us freely. And basically he's saying, did Assyria do that for you? Love you freely and provide you? Did your credit card do that for you? Did your big screen TV do that for you? Did the promotion at work do that for you? Did another helping of ice cream do that for you? Did a little bit too much to drink do that for you? Did an evening with porn do that for you? Did an adulterous relationship do that for you? No. The God who loves us, he's calling us to something much better himself. So we receive his love. The Bible says it is his kindness which leads us to repentance. Yes, he's holy. Yes, we're sinful. I'm not minimizing that. But I'm saying the appeal of scripture here is I love you. And we come to a God who loves us. There's nothing but goodness that comes out of repentance. You miss out on nothing if you repent and follow God. The church misses out on nothing when we embrace God. Yet we miss out on tons when we don't. God wants us to know and have him. Number two, we repent. We receive the love of God. Think of the motivation of this passage. We repent. I don't probably need to spell that out again. We turn to him. We turn with specific confession. And we ask him to forgive us. And we ask him to do what we just read in renewing us. When was the last time you and I specifically confessed sin to God? Not said, oh, I sort of feel bad generally, but specifically like this passage, paused and confessed sin to God. When is the last time I specifically confessed sin to someone that I had sinned against? When did you do that last? When was the last time I confessed sin to someone, maybe I didn't sin against them, but who could help me and pray for me and encourage me, my small group or some other context, my spouse, a a mature friend? When did I express confession to someone else who could support and hold me accountable? Confession, specific. that's That's really key in turning to the Lord here in this passage. And lastly, expect that the renewal that's described here will be our experience. I, I mean, I was just reading this passage and saying, wow, what if this happened in the church? Like, what if the poetic expression that he, that he describes here happened? What, what if we threw ourselves on the grace of God and experienced this? Ray Ortland said about this passage, he said, a repentant church has abandoned itself to God alone. It risks everything on the promises of God. It is on its face before God. Hey, what would a church be like where the people of God are on their face, figuratively at least, desperate for God? Saying, Lord, we're, we want to turn away from the lies of the world and we want to embrace you fully. We don't even know what all that means, but we know some specific things it means to turn from, and we want to throw ourselves on your love. We want to abandon ourselves. We don't want another security plan. We don't want other options. We don't want other comforts, other joys. Lord, we're not looking for other hopes that the world is offering to us. We want you as our hope, you as our joy, you as our security. That's what we want And so we're going to give ourselves away to one another. 
We're going to give our finances away. We're going to give our time away. We're going to be with you in your word. We're going to take what you've done, and we're going to spread your fame, is the word that's used here. We're going to share that with others that don't know you. A church that's experiencing this, where the dew of the Lord is on us, that is the freshness of his spirit. A church where you come in and there's stability, and we have that in our church, but a greater stability where people are saying something's being built here and is growing for generations. It's like the, the cedars of Lebanon. It's the, it's the massive trees in California. That's what it is. It's towering. It's enduring. It's lasting. It's going from one generation to the next generation. That's what it is. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? Who doesn't want to be a part of what if the church had a fragrance of Christ? Not a stench of self-righteousness. Not the stench of judging others. Not the stench of legalism. Not the stench of worldliness. Not the stench of idolatry that invades the church so the church looks just like the world and it stinks. The world, the world stinks. I mean, there's beautiful things by common grace. I'm, you understand what I'm saying? But the world's mindset and goals and values stink. But the person of Jesus is glorious. What if the church smelled like Christ? How glorious, to a greater degree than it does, how glorious would that be? People committed to life change. We want to grow. We want to flourish like the grain. We want, to, we want to blossom like the vine. We want to be a vine with grapes all over it. We want to be attached to the vine, abiding in the vine, bearing tons of fruit, God cutting off the branches that don't bear fruit, and bearing tons of fruit. There's growth. There's life change. We're like way different than we were five years ago. We're different than we were one year ago. We're different than we were two months ago because there's growth. This is what God offers for his people. This is a vision for the church. This is a renewed people of God. People committed to life change and a people committed to taking the gospel who don't know Christ. We don't have to give up one for the other. It's both. It's growing in holiness and it's being a living witness to those who don't know Jesus. Both, both motivated by the glory of God. God wants holy people. God wants lost people saved. So let's give ourselves to both and don't compromise either. People abandon to the purpose of God and it shows up in our marriages. It shows up in our family life. It shows up in our finances. It shows up in our work ethic. It shows up in what we put in front of our eyes. It shows up in what we listen to and what we say to others and how we speak about others. It shows up all over the place because it's the life of God among the people of God, and that is renewed. And this passage teaches that God calls his people to return to them in humility, broken words, sincere hearts, turning from idols, and that he delights to pour his presence on them and show his glory. Let's pray that. been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.